Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Season 2, Episode 21, Radical Inclusion. Hello, everyone. I wanted to give a huge shout out. Thank you, the Blink of an Eye listeners. You know, we've been growing Blink of an Eye by about 100 new listens a day. Thank you for telling your friends about this story and for being on this journey. I think we are all on a journey together, don't you think? We really are all doing this trauma healing work which is best done with the ground of support, which we provide to each other as we listen in together. Becoming more aware of our humanity, our brokenness, our resilience, when we are stuck or still carrying the wounds of our past. Sometimes the wounds of our past make us who we are. Yes, when we are in emotional and physical pain, it is real. It is also only part of our experience. There are other parts of us that can feel okay and that can feel joy and feel good, even at the same time as we feel pain. Part of the trauma healing journey is to include it all. The painful past, the sorrow, the loss, and also to allow in the joy and the pleasure of the life we have. Oh, we want to feel it all, don't we? Of course we do. We don't want to deny ourselves the beauty of laughter and joy and rest and ease, even when we are in pain. We suffer because we're human. God takes no delight in that. There is so much goodness in life for us to claim and live into despite our traumas. We don't have to bypass our pain or our suffering we often can't anyway. We can include it all because it is both pain and pain-free. Well, I was pretty wound up in the story today with my own thoughts contributing to my pain. And then I had a real conversion. When we have a different experience with our thoughts and fears, and our pain, we metabolize more of our traumas. 
And that's what I want to consider today in the Blink of an Eye story and to delve into further in the Companion Trauma Healing Learning 21, Radical Inclusion. I want to explore together why we hold on to, hold fast to, and sometimes cling to the painful past. Our trauma healing journeys are filled with all our feelings and sensations, the ugly and the tender, the dark and the kind. We can acknowledge both the pain and the release, the wound and the loving touch. We can include it all as we live into compassion. That is what supports us through our suffering. Let's do that today, together, with each other, and for each other. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 21, Radical Inclusion. Today, in this episode of the story, you'll hear about a day of transitions from Atlanticare to Baltimore, from summer to fall, and my dawning awareness of what it would mean if Archer rehabbed in another state. So settle in, settle your spirit. Just notice what comes up for you, what it is that stirs in your body. It might be inviting you to think in a new way about a belief or pain that you too have been holding. Okay, here we go. Back to August 2015 at Atlantic Care Hospital in the trauma intensive care unit. Episode 21, Radical Inclusion. Life can change in the blink of an eye. August 30th, Sunday evening, day 26. It was already seven o'clock, but the August night was still hot, and the lights outside the hospital in pulsating Atlantic City were bright. Dutch and I headed to Caesars Casino parking lot to get in the car. Tara Grimes was right when she said that parking lot, as the hospital parking lot, was so strange. But complicated and a bit off-putting as it was, in the beginning, I kind of liked the way the hospital created an unlikely partner. My mind was still buzzing with ruminations of whether it really was the best choice to take Archer to Atlanta, Georgia, so far away, to the Shepherd Center. I thought it was right, but I wasn't sure I don't know if you have ever had that experience. I bet you have. 
My mind was also still buzzing with what Billy had just said to me, that I should go with Archer. And in my planning mind, I was racing with what all that would entail. If we did get to Atlanta, I felt we would be there a long time. It's crazy how much can pass through your mind in just seconds. I reached for Dutch's hand and he joined his and mine as we walked out of the covered tubular hospital bridge into the garage. I loved it that he still allowed me to hold his hand and I smiled to think he may even have enjoyed it. I know I did as I sensed into the comfort of having my sweet youngest boy who just turned 13 back by my side home from camp and ready to start school. My mind darted back to thoughts of Archer, though, and I had to figure out a way for Archer to not miss time from school. I wasn't sure how we were going to do that. Oh, maybe we shouldn't go to Atlanta. As Dutch and I approached the car, I was aware of all my perseverating, and I suddenly remembered South. I stopped and let go of Dutch's hand and picked up my phone for the compass app, looking for where south was, as I tilted my phone to allow the arrow on the dial to fill in. Ah, it was there. I turned my body and lined myself up with the arrow on the compass. I formed the question in my mind, calling on all my angel guides. Is it the highest and best decision to take Archer to the Shepherd Center? I had done this a number of times over the years when I was really not sure of a decision, an important decision, as I tried to tune in to my body. Sweet Dutch walked ahead and got in the car. Well, South has always been a strong direction for me, according to my place and time of birth. It's the direction where I can most easily feel the energy of God's universe. Oh yes, I was looking for signs. I often am, but I was begging for signs that day. Please, Lord, let me know it's the right decision. I got in the car and remembered how it was packed to the gills. When Pete slammed the hatch closed earlier that morning, there wasn't room for one more thing. He and I had stuffed inside all the summer garb, the hootiewats and everything else we had brought for our vacation in Cape May, New Jersey. Vacation. It seemed so long ago. As we wound our way down the parking lot ramps, I looked in the rearview mirror at the bags and baskets of food and coolers of leftovers we had to clear out of the kitchen and refrigerator. We should have just pitched it all. 
There was so much. I didn't want to waste it. But the deeper truth was I just couldn't throw it away. What felt like so much love. It's so crazy, but it was like each bag of cookies or popcorn or whatever was given to us by all the Cape May friends was like a piece of them to me. As we drove, the thought passed over me, man, Louise, you're going to have a serious hang-up about food. But I did feel and still do that providing food is such a tangible expression of love. Isn't that what Christ said to do? Feed the hungry? Well, they did. And I felt their love. As Dutch and I got on the highway, I was thinking about what all had to be done in Baltimore. I knew we were going home to a house with a very empty refrigerator and cupboard. I stopped myself again and was like, your son is on the precipice of having to stay a long time in this hospital or of getting out and you are busying yourself with how Paul and Dutch are gonna eat for the next week? It was absurd, but it was also very real. They did have to eat. I thought it would be about another week before I could come home again, before we'd have some final answers about whether or not Archer was transportable. I turned to Dutch and said, we're headed home, baby to Baltimore for something normal, the start of school, and you are going to have a great year. What do you want to do this year? It's seventh grade. As he thought about it, I found my mind drifting back to wondering how much school Archer could miss and still be part of his junior high school class. Maybe we shouldn't go to Atlanta if his schooling will be jeopardized. But if we go and are back in four weeks, maybe he could still assimilate into school. Four weeks is a month. That's a long time to be gone. They said rehab can be four to six weeks for some people. I hoped Archer would be in that four week category. Archer and I had discussed school last week before his latest setback when his lungs collapsed again. Oh, he had made it very clear that he didn't want to miss school. And I could see the panic in his eyes. I got it. He had no way to make anything happen like he used to. He had to rely on us for everything. It was a profound awareness I had that day when he mouthed to me, I want to graduate on time. And I had promised I would see to it that he did. As I drove, I was counting the days before McDonough school started and counting the days we might be away. Maybe it would just be three weeks that he would be gone. I had a lot to figure out. 
but it felt good just to be driving with Dutch. Well, Dutchy, have you thought about it? I turned and said, nah, not really, he said. And I said, well, why don't you try something entirely new? Lead Dutch and do something you've wanted to do, even if your friends don't want to, or bring your friends along. I mean, you've talked about the chess club. How about that? Or you could take on one of those little kids in kindergarten and help them to read. Or how about the school play? I was in a school play when I was your age. It was a blast. He said he'd figure it out. And we drove on in silence. I still couldn't believe our middle son Dewey had transferred colleges and chosen on his own to apply to and attend Loyola University, a Jesuit school practically down the street from our home in Baltimore. I was proud of him and knew that was a real sacrifice to come home to Baltimore. I felt relieved, though, to know he would be close. I had this strong feeling that it would have been awful had one of our children been living elsewhere during this crazy time. I wanted us all physically close and to experience this together, whatever this was. I felt relieved, too, that Pete had accepted a full-time job offer in Baltimore at Whiting Turner as soon as he finished his final semester in civil engineering at the University of Maryland. And I was so grateful that Paula told me she was staying at friend school rather than pursuing another job offer. I was just so grateful that they were all going to be there together or close enough to be there for each other too. And for Dutch, I couldn't express my gratitude enough for their decisions to be close. I hadn't asked them either. They just did. But they knew I was concerned about Dutch. Well, I hadn't articulated that, but I think they were honestly concerned too. He had only just been 12, really, the last time we saw him, and then he turned 13. It was his world that was about to be really rocked. I could feel this. I mean, I imagine any family with a child on the cusp of becoming a teenager would be focused on that child regardless of circumstances, right? I mean, so much happens to the brain and the body and to social relationships and all those interactions at this time in life. I think we all knew that. I mean, everyone had passed through seventh grade and knew it was an important year. But what was also on my mind was that Dutch had never not had siblings, indeed many siblings around him. His whole life was surrounded by brothers and a sister. Sure, we all felt the difference when Paula went off to college, and I thought the house would never be the same. And it wasn't. 
And then when Pete went off to college, I thought the house would never be the same. And it wasn't. And then when Dewey went off to college, and I thought the house would never be the same either. But by that time, Archer and Dutch and Dewey were all so close that I was more focused on Archer and Dutch missing Dewey than I was on Dewey being away. Yes, I was comforted that Archer and Dutch would have each other. But here we were now, when Dutch would have had Archer with him in the natural sequence of our family. But if Archer and I had to stay in New Jersey another week or so, Dutch would start school without the usual boisterous support of his brother and the usual start of the school year rituals in our family that I would have been doing with both kids. And if we had to go to Atlanta, oh, I couldn't even think about that really, but I knew I needed to. It felt raw that Archer would not be with Dutch. And I felt the stinging reality of that setting in. As we drove, I asked Dutch to send a text for me to the big kids, Paula, Pete, and Dewey, who are all back in Maryland now at schools, to see if they could stop by the house tomorrow, late afternoon, after work and school, so we could have a family meeting. But that gathering weighed heavily on my mind, too, as we continued driving. So much to figure out and so much still up in the air but I could see the impression of Archer in my mind as he mouthed to me a couple days ago one step at a time and Dutch said I just want to go home I was only going to be home for less than 24 hours the plan was I'd return to Atlanta Care the next evening after I prepared Dutch for his first day at school and did a facilitation mediation project at Johns Hopkins with the physicians there on integration. Oh boy, I felt another wave of sadness. Maybe it's because I was leaving Dutch. I was so relieved that we had a chance to go to the Shepherd Center. But I was getting anxious about not being there for Dutch. I know how important a positive start of every school year is, every school day is, for a child's success in the school year. I felt a shudder run down my back. I was supposed to pay attention to something. Well, Billy had lessened the complications of who would go with Archer. But it had created a worry of mine of who would be with Dutch as I wondered how we would get Billy down to Atlanta too. As we drove, I checked in with Dutch to ask if he was excited to start seventh grade. But again, he said nothing. 
The silences worried me. I reached over to gently squeeze his arm, which he allowed me to do. As we drove on in silence, I felt that relief that I could focus on my other children and their lives. I had every intention to show Dutch I would take care of the necessary preparations for him and the big kids too, who had already started college classes in their respective schools. Billy had helped move Dewey into the dorm the day before, but I didn't know if he even had towels. While they're older and self-sufficient now, I had this overwhelming maternal desire to connect and be around and let them know I was available as they started their fall semesters. <laughs> I reminisce about the many en masse group shopping trips over the years we took as a family. About a week or two, or sometimes a day or two before school started. All the kids would pile in the Suburban and we'd all go shopping for supplies and backpacks and new shoes. We'd go down the list as we sat in the parking lot and I'd ask each of the children to call out what they'd be responsible for finding as we all entered the store and fanned out. And depending on age, holding hands of younger siblings for a big back-to-school shopping event. It was always a bit zooey, but it was something the kids and I always looked forward to. And then we'd come home, and they'd open the purchases all over the living room floor and distribute them into five little piles, what each of them needed. In the really early days, when I only had two children to take, Paula and Pete, as we'd head to Kmart or Caldor. Then it was three kids when Dewey got to be school-aged, then four when Archer was old enough. And that's when we started bulk shopping at Walmart, Price Club, and Staples. So when Dutch joined the pack, we had a system. And it was all five kids every year for so long. And then... When Paula entered high school. And so it was just the four boys and I for back to school shopping. And then three. And then only two. And now, just touch. I know it's part of expanding and constricting. And at this point, my supply closet at home with leftover pencils and erasers and book covers and Lord only knows what else, three-hole punch line paper, would probably be enough to supply him without a trip to the store. I wonder if you have similar rituals for how you get your kids ready for back to school. My sense of it is that kids benefit from knowing their parents are taking care of what they need. Like, it helps calm their little nervous systems when they're cared for. I knew the time would come for each of them to take care of their own needs, but it just wasn't that time yet for Dutch. And this year, in particular, I didn't want to just 
direct Dutch over the phone from Archer's hospital room. Get your stuff on your own out of my supply closet. Look on the third shelf. I'll see you in a week. I just couldn't do that. Not under these circumstances. Life had changed. I needed to be there with him, even if just for a night and a morning. I was starting to feel some anxiety about what our next steps might be. Who would really be here for Dutch? Who would see him in the mornings and talk to him? Who would make his lunch? Who would drive him to school if it rained? Who would make dinners? Who would talk him through his bouts of resistance? Who would ask him how his day was at school? I was getting worked up. I was just so sad. And what if we had to move to Atlanta? Because that's where we just needed to go. Oh my God. I felt like we were being held up by toothpicks. I knew I was getting wound up. I thought about one of my favorite poems, The Guest House. Do you know it? The Sufi mystic poet, Rumi. He writes, Welcome and entertain all the unexpected visitors, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. I was so torn about leaving Archer and not being there for Dutch. It was also complicated. I always fantasized as a young girl how I could be in two places at the same time. Like Bewitched, remember her? Who could wrinkle her nose and be transported wherever she wanted and then back again. Oh, I loved that TV show in the 1970s. And it played on my childhood fantasies of transporting me to see my father, who was deceased, but I imagined him to be on a mysterious island from that plane crash. And then I'd fantasize being beamed back to be with my mom at home. Oh, how our paths inform us and shape us. Well, this time, I was not a child, and I knew I was not able to be in two places at the same time, or even fantasize about it. I was agonizing about it, that I could not be with both children at life-shaping times in their lives. I don't know if you have ever been split in that way from two people you love. Have you? where you feel pulled in two directions for your presence, but you can't be at two places at the same time, even though you really want to be. I felt like I needed serious eyeballs on Dutch all the time to make sure he would be okay. And I also had this reality check moment that Archer and I might not be back in Baltimore for a while. I was thinking it might be a couple of weeks 
God forbid if it were longer. So much happens in the first couple weeks of school with the start of sports practices and sign-ups for all the parent stuff at school and coaches meeting and field trip permission slips needing to be signed, back-to-school parents and teachers meetings. I knew I could not have someone take my place for all of that. And I wanted to be there. I wanted Dutch to know he was taken care of. I wanted him to have a successful start of his school year. I had this wave come over me. Like I just wanted to collapse on the steering wheel. Oh God, please help me. I felt the burning in my eyes as I took the last exit off the Jones Falls Expressway, the local Baltimore Highway. I brushed back the tears. They were rolling down my cheeks as I thought about my baby boy and my not being there for a while. (sighs) Dutch, who was in the passenger seat, caught me wiping my eyes and he said you okay mama yes darling I'm fine just a lot on my mind what are you thinking about he didn't reply we pulled up to our house oh My Lord, incredible kindness awaited us. I couldn't believe it. As we parked, neighbors came out of nowhere to greet us. How'd they know we were coming home? They helped us unload and told me they had watched our house night and day for us. They said they wait every day for us to return. It was like they just swooped in to take care of us. All the anxious thinking about Dutch was sort of suspended as I felt their support steadying me. We hugged and embraced, and I turned to hug and kiss Dutch too. I was so overjoyed. Aren't we lucky, Dutchie? It's like... They were angels coming to me to remind me of how much support we really had, even though we were so unsure. We were lost, but we were also anchored. In that moment, in our front yard, I had this sort of existential experience. I was looking at them, busy unloading Dutch's bicycle and dirty laundry and smelly towels and a basket of food and toilet paper and honestly sort of like flapping their angel wings all around me. And I felt lifted and carried and supported I wanted to always remember that 
that feeling. I had the opportunity to interview two of these good neighbors, Elizabeth and Ken Rice, six years later as we looked back together. Here is an excerpt. I remember taking things from, from the car into the house and um, just thinking, my gosh, um, you know, everything you had going on and trying to get to a normal start of school for Dutch just seemed so overwhelming. Like, oh my gosh, like how do you go from this absolute chaotic, life-changing last couple few weeks or however long it had been, incredibly intensive time to a place where everything's just in the normal flow and you're just going back to school and you talk about what a great summer you had. Yeah, so I, I and, and I remember bringing things in your, I, I remember walking into your house and just feeling like, oh my gosh, how do you regain some normalcy for for your family and for, for your other kids and with, with this massive other thing going on. And what you all were going through in terms of just, you know, feeling that almost hour by hour, you know, like you said, discernment of how you were going to move forward and how you were going to do things. And, um, you know, it just, it, it didn't feel it. It was a very surreal time, I think. Mm -hmm. I just think, I remember thinking you must be exhausted. Like I, I, I was exhausted thinking about what you were doing and just the vigilance that you had to have and the paying attention and the being on top of. And you taught us in the midst of everything else you were doing, um, you and Billy both taught us that, um, that we could be part of that journey by support and, and support um, team uh, because you invited us to be part of that. And that, that was unusual in the sense that I, you know, I was sort of raised in a way to respect people's privacy or to wonder how people, you know, what would be the right thing, you know, sort of leave, leave a coffee cake and run away. And, um, you know, I think you all were very much as you've always been, um, sharing in your journey and I think you taught all of us how to how to grieve how to be an advocate how to um you know and it's it's a gift that you let people help you because I think sometimes people feel they they want to they have to do it all themselves and heaven knows you all did you know 99.9 percent .9 of it yourselves but just letting that 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 compassion sharing of letting us feel like we could do something or uh, that, that that was helpful was, was a gift that you somehow found the space to give in the midst of everything you all were going through. We reached out and gave each other more hugs as we finished piling the last load into our dining room. And we just looked at each other as we were still holding on to each other's arms and no one knew what to say. What do you say? They were my friends, but the words would not come. I found myself just nodding 
And then as if reading their minds, I said, yes, it is awful. Oh God, I don't know what we're going to do. Please take care of Dutch. I might have to go away for a while with Archer. Please pray for us. I know we're going to be okay, but please help us. I knew we would be okay, but it didn't make the awfulness go away. I looked around the yard, and then I went inside and looked at our kitchen. We're going to make it. It was fragile. But all those little toothpicks pushed together would create a strong base of stability. It was just going to be different. I didn't know exactly how. But that part was sure. The house was eerily quiet as I had Dutch so much on my mind. I think it was the silence in our house that worried me most. I bit my lips so hard I tasted the salty blood. Oh boy. Friends and family were the gift. We are never alone when we reach out for help. I have learned so much. I found a note in my phone from this day, and this is what it read. Quote, Thank you, all neighborhood friends who helped us unpack. And who were all the angels who worked their wings on our front yard and garden? How will we ever be able to thank you? We are all in this together, end quote. And I was reminded again of how I could feel acute emotional pain and also feel supported. And I didn't have to rid myself of the pain. I couldn't. But I could feel into it and feel the support of so many loved us. I knew they loved us. And we loved them. I remember pausing that night again to scan my body to see if I could feel that love and just take it in. I wanted to feel it in my body some way because I wanted to be able to remember it and resource it later. As I scanned, there it was. My chest, of course. My heart. I felt it. It was burning and expanding at the same time. As I stood in the kitchen, I closed my eyes to see if I could include both the burning and the expansion and welcome them both. I was home, and I was home with Dutch. 
even if just for a moment. We had our family meeting as Paula, Pete, Dewey, Dutch, and I met at our house. I asked the children and Dutch to take care of each other. And I told them there were a lot of people who would look out for them and to make sure they reached out for whatever they needed. Children, it's okay if you need help to get it. It's okay to ask for help. This is hard, and it's going to be hard. But we're all going to be okay. And so is Archer. You're going to go live your lives. We'll have some changes, but we're going to be okay. We're going to get through this together. We're a family. Okay? I had an opportunity to interview my daughter, Paula Sempt, <laughs> now Paula Sempt Easton, about this family meeting over five years later and what it was like for her. Well, what I, what I remember specifically about the family meeting was how concerned I was about Dutch because I really wasn't sure what it would look like if I, if I were not home. And, um, and I remember you and Pete and Dewey and Dutch and I, all of us, except Archer, of course, and, you know, the boys all kind of with their heads down and they're, you know, kind of doing this, just sort of talking about what it would look like. Um, And I have, I found these notes that said, and they, they brought everything sort of back for me because I couldn't remember everything that happened in that meeting, but that essentially I, I think I was a little choked up and I said, I want you to take care of each other. I want you to do well in school and in your lives. And I meant for you with your new job and for Pete, who would had his one last semester. And I want you to live your lives. You need to live your lives. Do you remember that? Yes. I, I wouldn't have been able to say it was like at a family meeting, but I remember you like expressing those sentiments. Do you remember what I said? I think you said something along the lines of like, I need you to live your lives because if you don't live your, like something along the lines of like you living your lives well will help Archer because it will help me and dad because not like if we fall apart too kind of messaging, but you know, if we are able to be our best selves in these moments it will benefit the whole family. That's right. I remember this feeling of 
even we with each other felt a little helpless. And you were had some consternation about having to return to work. I was like, no, live your lives. You need to. That's the best way to be of help to this family is to live your life and to be successful and to be kind to each other and to look after each other. There's a little pressuring, honestly. Yeah. I mean, truthfully, it wasn't a small order in those moments for any of us, I don't think. Yeah, so what how what was that like to feel that little pressure? Cuz as I'm hearing myself, I'm like, yeah, that's there's some pressure there. There was a <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much time to be breathing, really. It was kind of like we have to keep moving. Cuz we didn't know what necessarily to be grieving yet or like how to grieve or what the outcome would eventually be. It was just kind of like limbo for a long, long time. It seemed at every turn, there was a moment of, all I know to call it is radical inclusion. And I imagine you have experienced this as well. When you're most fearful for your children's future, but you have to set them free when you're most in pain about what is not meant to be. But you believe there is something else. And when you feel so lost, but also so certain, it was all of it. After the big kids left, Dutch curled up in a ball on the sofa. I curbed my first reaction of, oh, Dutch, please don't curl up. And I curbed my other instinct to say, it's going to be okay. I decided instead to go lie down next to him and put my arms around him all curled up. And I said, I know you're scared. And I imagine you're very sad. It's okay if you curl up. And I'm going to hold you, okay? I'm your mama who loves you. He batted me away. But I told him I loved him again. We all do, Dutchie. Dad, Paula, Pete, Dewey, and Archer. And it would not be like this forever. I reached over to hold him again. And he allowed me this time. And he cried. And I held him for a long time time. And he cried some more. Ooey, gooey, blubbery tears. And I cried too. And when he unfolded 
I told him that while I was away in Atlantic City or Atlanta, it would just be temporary. I promise. And you can call me any time of the day or night. Any time. It was the best I could do. You may have done better or differently with your 13-year-old, as there are lots of other parental responses, I am sure. But that's how it was for us. I didn't know what it was like for my other children back then, because the only one I was physically close to on a regular basis was Archer. And then, even so, I had no idea what the experience was like for him either. Separate, together, pain, joy, scared, hopeful, unknown, certain, a blubbery mess. Strong. It was all of it. I remember telling the children, Dad and I believe in miracles. You do too. Stay close to God. Archer will be okay. We still believe in miracles even when the miracles we hoped for didn't come to pass. Radical inclusion. Oh, as we close, if you have never heard of Rumi, the Sufi mystic, or of his beautiful poetry, here is the guest house from over 25,000 years ago. It's a nice poem to ponder. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Jalaluddin Rumi Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. You may continue listening this Saturday to the trauma healing learnings that accompany this story at Trauma Healing Learning 21, Radical Inclusion. Thank you for listening and telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Baltimore Mediation has offered trainings and workshops on conflict transformation, mediation, relational leadership, and the Enneagram since 1993. For more information on our course offerings, visit www.baltimoremediation.com.